You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident panelist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore daddy. This afternoon, we are looking at 365 days ago. This is January 13th, 2019. And at this point in time last year, obviously, we're going through the playoffs. There is a little bit of talk starting at about the 30-minute mark looking at the playoffs. So this is post-double-doink. This is kind of looking at those kinds of things. Um, Prior to that, the majority of this particular episode is, you know, we'd already gotten a defensive coordinator. Excuse well, mm, sorry, GM and then offensive coordinator. Defensive coordinator was the year prior. Um, So we're kind of just discussing some offensive coordinator options, things of that nature. It's pretty nerdy considering we already know the answer. So I'll I'll leave that up to you if you want to kind of go back and relive those days and kind of see what the options were and some of the names. It's kind of interesting, but um, it's kind of a super nerd episode. Otherwise, again, around 30-minute mark, we look at the playoffs from last year and kind of what the landscape was like back then. But otherwise, uh, we'll take a break, and um, I will talk to you tomorrow. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son, and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. So, um, talking about the same stuff we've been talking about for a very long time now. Coaches and playoffs. We do have some more coaching news. I've got a coaching recommendation. Then we'll slide into the playoffs, and uh, that'll be about it. In my mind, this will take about 35 seconds, but uh, we'll see how it goes. So there seems to be a little bit of a theme developing here. Maybe it's just a coincidence, but uh, Jets wide receiver coach Carl Durrell uh, apparently is a possible addition for offensive coordinator for Mr. LeFleur. 
similar to Mr. Todd Monk, and the guy is a wide receiver guy. A little bit of history, 1983 to 1986, he was a wide receiver for UCLA. Three years later, 1989, he jumps up to UCF as a wide receivers coach. One year later, he's an offensive coordinator wide receivers coach for Northern Arizona. So I know Northern Arizona isn't much, but it's kind of nuts to uh, start your career. I mean, a lot of these guys, when you look at their career, they start off as just like nobody assistants. Like you're basically just, uh, I, I don't know, you sit quietly and go get coffee for four years. This guy started off a wide receivers coach the very next year. He's an offensive coordinator. So that's kind of crazy. 1994, he goes over to Arizona State, um, Sun Devils, as a wide receivers coach. Worked uh, indirectly with the uh, the Hall of Famer, Jake Plummer. <laughs> That's a joke. He was bad. After that, he gets his first semi-big break as the offensive coordinator slash wide receivers coach for Colorado. I know he was an offensive coordinator before, but Colorado is a much bigger program than Northern Arizona is. Although, who knows what was what in 1990. But uh, his first year there, Colorado goes 10-2, and two, scoring 37 points per game, 6th out of 108 schools. So very, very impressive offense. 96, pretty much the same, 10-2 and two again. Finished 8th overall in the nation, about 30 points a game. Had uh, Ray Carruth, don't know if he ever had an NFL career, but he did have a 1,000-yard guy, 1,116 yards, 54 receptions, 20.7 yards per reception, 8 touchdowns. 1997, they went 5-6, and six, only 27 points a game, 45th in the nation. They lost their big hotshot receiver. I don't know if he went into the NFL or what, but his highest uh, yardage receiver was 659 yards. So the offense took a step back. The team as a whole took a pretty big step back. The next year, the record got a little better, 1998, but the offense continued to regret. It went down every single year he was there, 25 points a game. Again, 630 yards was his, his uh, top receiver. After that year, the whole staff got fired, but he made a pretty, I don't know, today it would be an upgrade. I don't know what it was at the time, but 1999 offensive coordinator, wide receivers coach for Washington, which today is a really good program. Under him, the offense did improve in 1998, the year prior. They were 6-6, six and six, uh, scoring 25 points a game. 1999, 7-5, 27 points a game, which is a little bit of a bump. Actually, actually interestingly enough, this is uh, Rick Neuheisel for Washington. So basically, Rick got... Or maybe he just went, I don't know. I don't know if he got hired or fired or what happened. But this is his old head coach goes over to Washington and brings him on with the exact same position. So he wanted him to come with. Anyways, after that, he makes the jump over to the Denver Broncos as a wide receiver coach. Now, interesting little note here. Washington, the year after he left, they went 11-1, 32 points a game. Now, I'm not necessarily going to knock Carl Durrell. Maybe that would have happened with him there too, but just interesting little tidbit. So he gets hired on under Mike Shanahan. This is a West Coast offense. Gary Kubiak is the offensive coordinator. And he's working with a couple guys, Rod Smith and Ed McCaffrey. Not super well known, but just just so we're aware here, Rod Smith went for 1,602 yards and Ed McCaffrey went for 1,317 yards. That, by the way, was with two separate quarterbacks, Brian Greasy and Gus Farratt. Now, the exact same administration was in there last year. It was uh, Gary Kubiak and Mike Shanahan, which, by the way, you want to see where the connection is there. Mike Shanahan would be the connection, right? They come from that same tree. But anyways, Rod Smith and Ed McCaffrey were both over 1,000, but Rod Smith was 1,020. Ed McCaffrey was 1,018. Again, the first year he gets there, wide receiver guy working with them, 1,600 and 1,300. That's just ridiculous. 
The next year, the team as a whole in 2001 goes 8-8. Eight and eight is a pretty down year, but Mr. Wide Receivers coach and Rod Smith working together. Rod Smith, once again, is a Pro Bowl guy two years in a row now. He goes for 1,300 yards. So 1,600 the first year he's there, 1,300 this year. The guy's gone for basically 3,000 yards in two years. In his last year there in 2002, again, Mike Shanahan, Gary Kubiak, the team goes 9-7. and seven. Rod Smith goes for 1,027 yards. Ed McCaffrey, 903 yards, almost breaks that mark. Another pretty good year for the wide receivers. From there, and the job that he did, he gets a head coaching job for UCLA. That's pretty impressive now. Keep in mind, this is a guy who the best, the highest he's ever been is an offensive coordinator for the for the uh, for UW for Washington. Otherwise, he's he's a wide receiver coach right now. He gets a head coaching job, and not just for any team, for UCLA, which is where he played wide receiver. This is like a dream job for him. So he he ends up going to UCLA. Bob Toledo was the guy that was a head coach. It looks like he was fired prior to the end of the season. Ed Kizarian, Kizarian, whatever, takes over for a game. But they're looking for a new head coach, and they hire uh, Mr. Carl Durrell. His first year is an absolute disaster. Not only do they get worse record-wise, going from 8-5 and five to... Uh, to 6-7, and seven, but they go from 29 points a game to 19 points a game. That said, however, uh, Craig Bragg was their number one wide receiver uh, the year prior, or both years, I guess, 889 yards. 2003, when he comes on, he ends up breaking that, goes over 1,000 yards. Another little interesting tidbit, guess who was on this team at UCLA? One, Mr. Mercedes Lewis. So, how about that? Find that deep dive on another podcast, Burn. The next year in 2004, they go 6-6. Six and six. The record doesn't get much better, but they get their points back up 30 points a game. The offense is really rolling. Unfortunately, the defense is just trash. They're, they're giving up about 26 points a game. But the, uh, the wide receivers could not. I mean, it, maybe it was just because it was distributed. They got a billion different receivers. But Craig Bragg, who went over 1,000 yards the year before, 483 yards, and he led the team. Mercedes Lewis, 402. However, Mercedes, seven touchdowns. So he's kind of their red zone guy. 2005 absolutely breaks the doors off of it, man. 10-2, and 8th in the nation, 39 points a game. So it took him a few years. This is year three, but man, oh man, is this offense rolling. Absolutely unstoppable. Now, again, they didn't have a 1,000-yard receiver, but number one receiver on that team as far as yardage, Mercedes Lewis, 58 receptions, 741 yards, 12.8 yards per reception, 10 touchdowns. He was a monster, man. I mean, he was, he was his guy. The Bragg is gone. He's out. Mercedes is, is their number one receiver, their number one weapon on this team. They don't have a stud. I mean, the quarterback's fine, but I mean, he's not a big NFL guy or anything. Oh, and by the way, you want to know who else was on this team? Mr. Maurice Jones-Drew. So you got MJD and Mercedes Lewis that are leading this team. 2006, things kind of fall off a little bit. They go 7-6, and six, only 23 points a game. Defense is getting better, though, only allowing 20. What's the reason? Well, MJD and uh, and Mercedes Lewis both got drafted. They're off the team. He doesn't have his two top weapons are gone. Marcus Everett is his top receiver, 450 yards, five touchdowns. That's gonna hurt. 2007, the team goes six and six before he ends up getting fired. Uh, Dwayne Walker comes in. They lose that game uh, on the season, 22 points a game. Basically, they lost their guys. They lost their offense. He probably needed a few more years and a few more weapons to get this thing turned around. And UCLA just said, "Nah, sorry." They let him go before the season ended. He goes on from there to pick up a, a, a wide receiver job for the Miami Dolphins 2008 to 2010. 
This time his head coach is Tony Sperano, offensive coordinator Dan Henning. The offensive scheme? Smash mouth. <laughs> you don't see that anymore. First year on the job, his only real wide receiver on this team is Ted Ginn, and this is with Chad Pennington at quarterback. So, I, I mean, I don't know exactly what anybody expects, but it's a pretty it's a pretty garbage job. By the way, the year prior to him getting hired, the Miami Dolphins in 2007 were 1-15. This was uh, Cam Cameron at coach, Dom Capers defensive coordinator. Just an absolute garbage team. So anyways, 2008 rolls around and they go 11-5 with Tony Sperano. So despite not having very many weapons, this was a pretty solid team. 2009, again, not very many weapons. Ted Ginn is on the team. The only guy that started 16 games was Greg Camarillo. But Devon Best was the top guy. He was kind of a big name at the time. But uh, 758 yards, not a whole lot going on there. The team goes 7-9, and nine, pretty terrible team. 2010, his final year there, again 7-9. and nine. This time, however, he's working with Brandon Marshall. So you got Devon Best, who was decent, 820 yards this time. Brian Hartline, isn't? I forgot about Brian Hartline. 615 yards, Brandon Marshall comes in his first year, 1,014 yards. So relatively impressive, right? He, he's He's got several thousand-yard receivers under his belt. You kind of get the impression as I'm going along here, he's kind of seen as like a wide receiver whisperer, right? He kind of comes in and kind of gets people over the hump a little bit. 2011, he becomes the quarterback coach for the Miami Dolphins. Why? I don't really know. Mix it up a little bit. Maybe it's just seen as like a promotion, but he ends up coaching Matt Moore. Now, the year prior, it was Chad Henney, so this is Matt Moore's first year. He only plays 13 games, starts 12 of them. You know, 60% completion percentage, 2,500 yards. Just just not great, but again, rookie, plays a portion of the year. I, I don't know. It's, it's a weird situation. It was a weird move. Worth noting, however, with him no longer with the wide receivers, Brandon Marshall goes for 1,200 yards. For whatever reason, the Texans are uh, impressed enough. They bring him over as a quarterback coach from 2012 to 2013. This time his assignment is to coach up Mr. Matt Schaub. Believe it or not, he actually does a pretty good job. Now, we're talking about the difference between 10 games and 16 games, but he had a 61% completion percentage for 2,400 yards. The next year, in his first year there, the guy has a 64% completion percentage, throws for 4,008 yards and 22 touchdowns. It's not exactly Drew Brees or anything, but it's Matt Schaub, so... He also went to the Pro Bowl that year. And he's 31 years old, so I don't know. Pretty impressive. 2013, Matt Schaub again only plays 10 games, only starts 8 games. Case Keenum had the other 8. Keenum went 0-8 because he's complete garbage. 54% completion percentage, 9 touchdowns, 6 interceptions. Matt Schaub, 61% completion percentage, 10 touchdowns, 14 interceptions. So just trash across the board. After that, I don't know that he got fired, but I have to assume he wasn't allowed in the building anymore. He goes back to Vanderbilt as an offensive coordinator. So this kind of seems and feels like he's kind of sliding backwards a little bit. I mean, at one point, he was the head coach for UCLA. He comes back into the um, the NFL, probably hoping to try to make that jump as an offensive coordinator in the NFL. Goes from wide receivers to quarterbacks. Schaub makes you look like a schlub. And then you go back as an offensive coordinator for Vanderbilt in 2014. The uh, <laughs> the Vanderbilt Commodores go from nine and four to three and nine after hiring on uh, Carl Durrell as their offensive coordinator. 17.2 points per game, 119th out of 128 schools. I do happen to notice there is a one Chandler Dorrell who is a wide receiver for the uh, Vanderbilt Commodores. I don't know if maybe he wanted to go coach his son or what, but. Bottom line is, team was no good. The next year, he takes his job with the Jets. This has taken a while, but I want to go through it. 
So for context, in 2014, the year prior, this is uh, Rex Ryan, Morty, Marty Morningweg, Dennis Thurman as the defensive coordinator. They go 4-12. and 12. As a refresher, this is back in the Geno Smith days, Chris Ivory, Chris Johnson, uh, Blyle Powell, Percy Harvin, uh, who else, Jeremy Curley. That's kind of the team we're talking about. So 2015, he comes on. Um, this time we got Mr. Todd Bowles. This is when he had started over there. Offensive coordinator is Chan Gailey. Now Todd Bowles comes over. He incorporates this Earhart Perkins system. To my knowledge, he has not worked under this system before. But this is the Patriots-Tom Brady kind of deal here. So this time around, we've got Ryan Fitzpatrick. And once again, guess who the wide receiver is? Mr. Brandon Marshall. If you remember, the one time Brandon Marshall goes over to the Jets, it, I mean, this, this was this was a very freakish year. Ryan Fitzpatrick goes off. Brandon Marshall, 1,500 yards. Eric Decker, 1,027 yards. The team goes 10-6. and six. Very, very impressive. Kind of came out of nowhere. You might also remember that that was sort of a one-hit wonder. Maybe it was just the new scheme kind of caught everybody off guard. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but seemingly everybody kind of figured it out. Quincy Anunua emerged as the top wide receiver, 857 yards. Brandon Marshall completely fell off, 788 yards. Robbie Anderson, 587. Nobody even got five touchdowns. Uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick played 14 games, only 2,700 yards. Bryce Petty started four. Geno Smith started one. Really pretty terrible year, 2017, 5-11, same offensive staff. This time we got Josh McCown as our quarterback, playing 13 games, Bryce Petty playing 3. Petty goes 0-3, McCown goes 5-8, and eight, uh, not even breaking 3,000 yards. This time we got Robbie Anderson and Jermaine Curse as the top guys. Robbie Anderson almost gets to 1,000 yards, Jermaine Curse 810, so not horrible. Robbie Anderson was actually about 15 yards per reception, which is pretty solid. Finally, 2018, we got our third different quarterback. This time it's Sam Darnold. Robbie Anderson, again, 15 yards per reception, but only 752 yards. Quincy Anunua drops completely off, although he only played 11 games. Uh, Christopher Herndon did play 16 games, tight end, 502 yards. So a lot of adversity over there. You know, three different quarterbacks is tough. A lot of turnover with wide receivers. You got Brandon Marshall. You got Quincy Anunua. You got Robbie Anderson. You got Jermaine Curse. You got a lot of different people coming and going. Different quarterbacks like different receivers, right? Fitzpatrick came in. He loved uh, working with uh, Marshall, and they went off. Last year, you had Quincy Anunua. This year, you got Sam Darnold, and he liked uh, Robbie Anderson, apparently. I, You know, it's tough. Now, to be clear, he is not fired. He is still currently the wide receivers coach for the New York Jets because the Packers had to get approval from the Jets. So even though Todd Bowles did get fired, Carl Durrell, as of yet, has not been fired. Now, as far as my thoughts on this, I, I don't necessarily like it. I suppose it makes sense, and as, as far as, okay, let me think. It checks quite a few boxes. First of all, wide receivers are very, very important. We've talked about how important it is to make sure that we get some guys at wide receiver to help out. Now, if we genuinely believe that we can just coach up the guys we have, that could be a pretty big benefit. And it does seem like there were some problems at wide receiver. Perhaps this is part of the conversation that's being had and why we're interviewing wide receiver coaches, even though it's Lafleur's job, he's getting input from Brian Gutekunst, and perhaps Gutekunst is saying, which would reflect kind of what we talked about during the season, Rodgers wasn't necessarily at fault quite as much as the wide receivers who just aren't getting it. They're not running the right routes, they're not doing the right things, they don't know how to, how to do things when this play breaks down. There might just be somewhat of a coaching deficit in getting a wide receivers coach who can coach up the talent, and there's a lot of talent in Marquez and EQ, 
Jamon Moore. How much coaching does that guy need? And, and listen, I'm, I'm talking myself into it now. We put a lot of draft capital last year into into wide receiver. Jamon Moore is a fourth-round pick. That's that's not, you know, we're not talking undrafted free agent here. He couldn't even get on the field. He's got a lot of talent. He's a real clean route runner. Um, he just couldn't put it together. So I could understand that. On top of that, of course, there's the Mercedes Lewis connection, which, you know, I don't know how much that's worth, but it's kind of neat to be able to kind of get back there. I mean, Mercedes was a hero at UCLA, and part of that had to do with Carl Durrell and how he used him and, and what he was able to do with him. So I could see that. Beyond that, he's got a lot of experience with a lot of different people. He's from that Mike Shanahan tree. I mean, that's kind of where he got his start. I shouldn't say he's from that tree. He's from college, and he's worked with a lot of different people, and Shanahan is just one of them. But they have similar experiences as far as how to operate in those kinds of things, and I'm sure they're going to talk about that. He's got West Coast experience. He understands how that works. Because if he comes in, again, he's not a wide receiver coach. He is an offensive coordinator, and another benefit of that is he's had experience with a lot of different quarterbacks both as a quarterback's coach, as a head coach, and even as a wide receiver's coach, you have to interact with the quarterback to some degree. A lot of different guys coming and going, how they interact with quarterbacks, all that kind of stuff. As a head coach, he had MJD, Maurice Jones-Drew. So he's got some experience with that as well. So he does check a lot of boxes. The head coaching experience is another box. Um, Somebody that uh, Lafleur can lean on a little bit for some experience. So, you know, I don't hate it. I think if I were to compile, you know, just just put a list in front of me, I don't think he's going to be the top, but he's also not going to be the bottom. Again, he checks a lot of boxes. And I do think we need to keep proper context. When we talk about stuff, you look at the Jets and their wide receivers and say, oh, well, where's all these freakish wide receivers? They're not getting any better. I mean, it's the Jets, man. It's the Jets. It's subpar talent at wide receiver. It's three different quarterbacks, almost all of whom are very... Um, untalented. The Jets' offensive line is not very good, so protecting Sam Darnold so that he can get the ball out properly is not an option. He also doesn't have any tight ends. It's just, it's it's a mess over there. But again, Brandon Marshall, you know, there's, there's plenty of guys who had unbelievable success, especially like when he first gets there. It seems like there's almost always just this big, big jump when he gets there. So anyways, that's, uh, that's Carl Durrell. Lots and lots and lots of experience. Work with lots of teams, lots of coaches, lots of different schemes and systems, which could be a big benefit, too, because he brings a lot. Again, Smash Mouth in Miami, uh, Earhart Perkins with the Jets, running a, a West Coast offense with the, the uh, Denver Broncos under Mike Shanahan, working with Gary Kubiak. Who knows what kind of crazy stuff he did at, at, at UCLA and Vanderbilt and Washington and all these different college programs. I mean, he, he brings a lot to the table. So, anyways, moving on. Now... Little suggestion here, something that I have not heard any any rumors about Packers looking at this guy. I know there was some talk about maybe as a head coaching candidate, but um, a thought came across my brains. Apparently, um, our offensive line coach, Mr. James Campen, somebody who is, I mean, he deserves a lot of respect for what he's done. You look at guys like Josh Sitton, you look at David Bakhtiari, you look at, you know, even Balaga, even though he's a first-round pick, he's been very, very good. Um, you, I mean, just, just even with the patchwork offensive line we have, we still have guys kind of stepping up. So I, I think he is a very, very good offensive line coach. The fact that he hasn't been snagged yet is, is incredible. But he's, he's doing the circuit now. The Vikings are interested. Apparently the Browns are going to be interviewing him for a job. I'd be a little surprised if we didn't lose James Campen. Now, if we are going to lose James Campen, here's a thought. 
we should maybe consider Mike Munchak for offensive coordinator. This would be a situation where we take a huge blow by losing James Campen, but it's kind of like two steps back, three steps forward, because Mike Munchak is an incredible offensive line coach. He played offensive line, um, offensive line coach for the, the Titans slash Oilers from 97 to 2010, which is just incredible. I'm talking about 13 years. Eventually gets promoted to head coach of the Titans from 2011 to 2013, then gets hired on as an offensive line coach for the Steelers, and we've seen how incredibly impressive their offensive line is. So, first of all, it kind of solves the... I don't want to go too much because I've already talked about Munchak, but it solves the offensive line problem. But beyond that, you look at Lafleur and what he's going to want to do in running a more balanced offense. Literally, if you look at the Tennessee Titans in 2012 or, or when he was a head coach there, the offensive scheme, as it's listed, is balanced. That's that's literally the name of it. I don't know what that means, I, I but bottom line is this is this is an offensive line guy who, if Lafleur is going to come in, and listen, he's coming into an organization that probably gives less of a care about running than any other team in the NFL, right? McCarthy's emphasis was on passing the ball. He was very, very good at it for a very long time. They got away with it by having just, you know, guys that got three yards of carry, and we don't do anything creative. We just, you know, close your eyes and run and get three yards. Been doing that since he got here. Occasionally, you get a guy like Eddie Lacy who knows how to break one once in a while. And then we got Aaron Jones who kind of makes stuff happen despite McCarthy doing nothing to help the situation. But if you want to come in here and try to change that that mentality of this is a team that all we do is we pass and we put everything on Aaron Rodgers' shoulders to, you know, we're actually going to really try and work hard on running the football. And that that's the offensive line. That's the the, the quarterback, the running back, the tight ends, everybody. The, the focus is is not just everything we do is, is pass blocking and passing, but we're actually going to drill and work hard to change the culture, change the way we play. It's going to be to our benefit to have somebody there to help you make that pretty major shift. And I don't know that there's somebody better than Mike Munchak. I mean, just just look at the Steelers. Everybody talks about Le'Veon Bell, and yes, he's unbelievably incredible, but what happens every single time Le'Veon Bell goes down? Another running back comes in, and he's incredible. D'Angelo Williams in 2015 started only 10 games. He played 16, only started 10, ran for 907 yards and 11 touchdowns. Look at James Conner this year. James Conner was like a fifth-round pick. Played in 13 games, only started 12, ran for 973 yards, 4.5 yards a carry. Jalen Samuels, same thing. Only started three games, but run for 4.6 yards per carry. And the, I mean, the, the idea that they just, well, it's because he gets 30 carries a game, that's not true. He, got, he averaged 16, 16 and a half a game. Jalen Samuels er, averaged four. The offensive line is a bunch of road graders. They just absolutely dominate against the run. Always have. And, you know, Le'Veon Bell's great. He's better than, than any of these guys that I listed. But the fact of the matter is a lot of his success is because he plays for the Steelers, and that's a big part of the reason I don't necessarily want him to come here, aside from all the other headache stuff. The reason he can be patient and stand behind the offensive line for five seconds before he finds his hole and hits it is because he's not getting tackled behind the line of scrimmage after two seconds. He can stand around and wait for the hole to develop. And it will, and it does, and he gets big plays out of it. You can't do that everywhere. You put Le'Veon Bell on a team that doesn't have an offensive line, put, put him with the Texans and see what happens. 
When those guys can't block for anything and everybody just shoots through the gaps and tackles Mr. I'm going to wait for the hole to develop for three seconds behind the line of scrimmage. Anyways, not trying to trash Bell. Again, very talented guy. But not nearly enough credit was given to this offensive line. The offensive line has been um, under the direction of Mike Munchak since, uh, what? Since, where is it? 2014. So it's just a thought. I don't, I don't really know. They don't seem super interested in him, at least not that I've heard. Everybody that they're interviewing seems to be more wide receivers, quarterbacks type stuff, because obviously it makes sense. And why do we bother to get Lafleur? Because we understand that what's important is new, innovative, passing, yards, scoring, all that kind of stuff, and you're going to get that with your wide receivers, not necessarily from run blocking. I get that. I'm just saying it's an option. We should leave it open. And, and, and you know, part of the problem here, you what, what aren't you getting? Munchak does not have nearly the amount of experience that Carl Dorrell has. He hasn't worked for a billion different teams in college and the pros. He's 100% pros. He played for the Oilers. He came out and coached for the Oilers. Then he coached for the Titans, which is the exact same team, but he stayed with that same team. Then he was the head coach of that team. He was that from 1982 to 2013. He was an Oilers slash Titans guy. Literally, I mean, he, he... he played in 1993. He coached in 1994. He never missed a year with the Titans from 1982 to 2013. The guy was born and bred Titans. Pittsburgh Steelers is the only thing he's ever known since, and he stuck around. I mean, that's that's the one good thing we could say about him. If we give him an offensive coordinator job, he'll stick around. Unless and until somebody wants to take him as a head coach or he gets fired, the guy has some staying power. But he doesn't have all the other schemes. He doesn't have all these other offensive knowledge that he gained from other head coaches. Granted, I'm sure Houston and Tennessee have had different head coaches over the years. But, I mean, I'm, I'm not really interested in what he learned from a head coach in 1994, necessarily. I don't know what the Oilers were doing back then, but whatever. He also doesn't have experience with the... I mean, again, they all have experience with everything, especially when you're a head coach. But his, his, his primary thing, his main thing is offensive line. What is he going to do as an offensive coordinator to be able to interact with Aaron Rodgers? What is he going to do to help develop the wide receivers like I just talked about and how important that is? So, he checks a few boxes. Experience, head coach, would be really good as far as implementing sort of this change to our offensive line, which isn't much of a change. It's the same sort of scheme, I guess. But again, changing the culture, developing offensive line, which I think is important. Teaching these guys how to run block, because as I've said, one of the better pass-blocking offensive lines in the NFL, some of the best pass-blocking players in the NFL... But run blocking? I mean, David Bakhtiari, as good as he is, that guy can't run block to save his life. Brian Balaga cannot run block. Lane Taylor cannot run block. None of these guys know how to run block. If we lose Campin, our offensive line coach, it's not great. Not that we can't and won't hire another offensive line coach, I'm just saying. But anyways, put, put, uh, put it in your cap. Think it over. And by the way, thoughts are appreciated. Get in the Facebook group or hit me up on Twitter or whatever. Let me know what you think. What are you looking for in an offensive coach? Between the two, which do you like? Et cetera, et cetera. All right, let's talk playoffs, and then we'll get out of here. At uh, noon o'clock, New England Patriots and the L.A. Chargers. I have to assume we're all on the same page here that we really want the Chargers to beat the Patriots. Just saw Ian Rappaport tweet out that it looks like Rob Gronkowski is very, very strongly considering retiring after this year. I know he hasn't been uh, necessarily a massive factor this year, but that, that that's a pretty big blow to this team. So Brady's getting a little bit older. They seem to be... I mean, I've already stated, because, well, I don't want to jump the gun here, but I've already stated this was maybe a week ago or so when I looked at the comparatives to 
teams now and past Super Bowl winners or whatever, there's certain keys that you need, and there were a couple teams that didn't have any of those keys. Vikings didn't have it. Um, I think maybe the Eagles, I'm not sure, but I know the Patriots were the other one, which surprised me. So they're not the team that they have been in the past, but... Um, as I've said, so far, everything in the postseason has just been absolutely fantastic. The Bears got eliminated right out of the gate. The Bears lost Vic Fangio. Dallas Cowboys lost, which is awesome. If, if we could just get New England and the Saints to lose, and, and I'm, I'm a little bit torn on the Saints thing, but I can't not want a better draft pick, even if it's just a couple picks at the end of the first. I will say, though, Philadelphia losing would feel good because I think their fan base is not my favorite. Beyond that, the whole Foles thing is kind of silly, and I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I, uh. the thing that I don't like about this is the only team I actually like, like out of this group is the Saints. The Eagles I don't mind, but I don't like their fans. New England I can't stand. The Chargers just, I don't feel like they deserve it. They drive me nuts. They annoy me. The thought of a Chargers-Eagles Super Bowl, it's like I don't even know if I could watch that. But I, I guess. The lesser of all the evils would be uh, Chargers win the Super Bowl. And look, I think Phillip Rivers deserves it. I think the team deserves it. Their, their roster has been ridiculously talented. I just get frustrated with the team and their inability to just not blow it all the time. I guess if Philly beats the Saints and the Rams beat Philly, I don't mind the Rams. Rams Chargers, Rams Chiefs, I could live with that. Whatever. Saints lose, Patriots lose, and I don't have to watch football anymore because I just don't care. Because everything is just perfect. So look... Here's the, here's the long story short with the Patriots Chargers. Chargers are the better team, hands down. However, the Patriots are built for playoff football. This is pretty much the same thing I thought with the the Rams and the Cowboys. It's the same thing I thought about the Ravens and the Chargers. You got one team that's got all the talent. You got one team that's kind of built for playoff football. Fortunately, so far, the better roster has won out. Colts are built for playoff football. Chiefs are the much better team. Chiefs won. Rams are a much better team than the Cowboys. Cowboys are more built for playoff football. Rams won. Hopefully that holds true, and we have the Chargers beat the Patriots. Because here's here's the bottom line. Phillip Rivers is playing better football than Tom Brady. He's, he's, he's incredibly underrated throughout his career anyways, but he's been on fire this year. They're very close, but if you look at pro football focus, Phillip Rivers is fourth, Tom Brady is fifth. If you just look at the passing grade by itself, Phillip Rivers is third, Tom Brady is fifth. So Drew Brees, Patrick Mahomes, and then Phillip Rivers. Again, nobody will ever give this guy any credit. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because he throws a football like an ape. I'm not exactly sure what the problem is there, but he's playing really, really, really good football. You look at the receivers, the best wide receiver on the field is going to be Keenan Allen. There's no question about that. Keenan Allen has been incredible. He's just been hurt a lot. You want to, I mean, I mean, again, another really underrated guy that I don't even talk about very much, but he's been basically elite for like three years in a row, and he was almost elite in his rookie year. He's the fourth best wide receiver in the NFL. Nobody talks about, just the Chargers in general, nobody talks about. The second best wide receiver in this game is going to be Mr. Mike Williams, also on the Chargers. The best running back in this game is Melvin Gordon. Hunter Henry, I believe, is going to be playing in this game. Now, I can't really speak to how good he's going to be in his first game back, but at this point in time, Hunter Henry is a better tight end than Rob Gronkowski. I'm not talking about career accomplishments. I'm talking about right now at this point in time. Now, the better offensive line, absolutely 100% the Patriots. 
Better pass rushers, probably the Patriots, but it's hard to stick your nose up at uh, Melvin Ingram and uh, Joey Bosa. Both of these guys are not having their best years ever, and considering the offensive line discrepancies, I'm thinking the Patriots are going to have a better chance of, of getting after the quarterback than the, uh, the Chargers are. But you look at the defensive backs, Casey Hayward and Michael Davis on the outside is a pretty solid duo. Casey Hayward is playing good football. Desmond King, their slot receiver, second best corner in the NFL right now. I say it every time I talk about him, but I really liked him coming out of college. It just annoys me that I didn't have the podcast to be able to brag about, or not really brag, but just to just to say into the microphone, why does nobody like him? He's very, very good. I don't understand. Just have to trust me when I said I thought those thoughts. I've been wrong about stuff, just not about this. But easily the best corner on the field. Beyond that, Derwin James, just a freak. So defensive backs, the Patriots are very, very good. In fact, I, I mean, man, it's actually hard to say who has the better defensive back group. Stephon Gilmore is, is graded as the number one corner, Desmond King being the number two. But then you look at uh, McCourty and J.C. Jackson, pretty solid. Devin McCourty at safety, also pretty good. Not Derwin James good, but he's very good. So, I mean, it's, it's going to be tough. Patriots defense is playing pretty good. I don't know. I, I Listen, my prediction is that the Patriots win because it's the Patriots and they know how to win. That's my prediction. I've been wrong twice now going with the the playoff team as opposed to the better roster. And I hope I'm wrong again. If for no other reason, I'm hoping to jinx it here. But I'm going with the playoff team and I'm going to say the Patriots win the game. Despite the lack of talent, Tom Brady is always able to find guys. He's going to have time because his offensive line is solid. Gronkowski's playing. Edelman's going to be able to get open. They know how to use their running backs. The Chargers linebackers and defensive tackles are not all that great, so they should be able to run the ball effectively and keep the ball out of the Chargers' hands to be able to to dictate the time of possession. Derwin James is solid, but uh, Jaleel Adai, their free safety, is not very good, so they should be able to attack deep. Again, really hope I'm wrong, but I'm picking the Patriots. The other game, the uh, Saints and the Eagles, I, I mean, you have the better roster and what I believe the better playoff team in the New Orleans Saints. I think the the Saints are the best team in the NFL. Anything can happen in the playoffs. It just takes one really bad day. You never know. Philadelphia just seems to have this sort of magic. But, I mean, just just the simple fact that Drew Brees is the number one graded wide receiver, uh, quarterback in the NFL right now. Michael Thomas is the second highest graded wide receiver. The Eagles do not have good corners. They just don't at all. Every time I do my mock drafts and stuff, I usually have them taking a corner because they just absolutely need it. Um, the offensive line for the the Saints' interior is not very good, but they might have the best uh, tackle duo in the NFL that includes the Packers. They have the second-best left tackle, Teron, Teron Armstead. Ryan Ramzik is the seventh-best tackle in the NFL, so the second and seventh-best. Alvin Kamara is a, a very, very good weapon. Now, the defense for the Eagles is really going to have to step up because their defensive line very, very good. Their linebackers are pretty solid. Um, their strong safety, Malcolm Jenkins, is a pretty good football player. So, I, you know, I, I think as far as being able to run the ball, the Saints could have some problems. But it really, I mean, it's just going to come down to the Saints being not only a better team, but I think a more creative team. I mean, if, if you want to line up against the Eagles and play smash mouth football, the Eagles are probably going to wreck you. I just think the Saints are a smarter team than the Eagles are. I think they're going to be able to find ways to, to get the ball out of Breeze's hands make these linebackers go laterally. Michael Thomas is going to pick apart, I mean, Thomas and Ginn, and, and I mean, they're, they're just going to pick apart these these guys in the secondary. I think the Saints are going to run up the score, and I don't think the Eagles have a very real possibility of stopping them. 
On the flip side, um, the Eagles kind of have a tough job here because you don't want to get into a shootout with the Saints, but you're absolutely going to have to run up the score a little bit. One of the biggest negatives for these guys is the fact that Corey Clement and Jay Ajayi are both on IR. So basically they're operating with Wendell Smallwood and Darren Sproles. That really hurts. With that, you've got Nick Foles, who's going to have to try to distribute the ball. Now, they got Nelson Aguilar, Alshon Jeffrey, and Golden Tate. And Golden Tate, obviously, is a pretty good addition. The Saints also don't have very good guys in the secondary. So, well, their safeties aren't bad, but their corners, not great. Even Marshawn Lattimore isn't quite as good as he was in his freshman year. But again, pretty similarly, defensive front, Rankins, uh, Jordan, Anyamata, Okafor, Davenport, who they traded up to get uh, for us. These guys up front are pretty solid. So, again... Not having that running back, they're really going to have to throw the ball a lot. And beyond that, they've got two really good tight ends in Ertz and Dallas Goddard, who's a very good tight end. So they've got a lot of weapons to really stretch this thing out. So is it possible to win? Yes, it is. But it's going to largely depend on the defense really just getting the ball back, and the offense has to be perfect. I mean, if you can actually get a three and out from the Saints or get them to punt at all or even get them to kick a field goal, you have to go down and get seven. You just have to because you have to assume that this is going to be a game where it's Seven, 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 seven. It's just it's going back and forth. And similar to when the Packers played the Falcons, it was a matter of if you kick them, get them to kick a field goal, you basically got yourself four points. In my mind, that's sort of the mentality. Now, the Eagles, again, don't want to play that way, but you know, consider it a gift if your defense can get the Saints off the field. And your offense better be on their game, man. You can't be punting. Don't even, don't even let your, your punter on the plane with you. I don't care if you're on your 10-yard line, it's 4th and 15, throw it. Okay, not really, but I'm just saying. But I, I do think the Saints win. Uh, obviously, there's there's a path for the Philadelphia Eagles to win. Their defense is pretty solid. Their offense has some talent. But the Saints are a better team, and I don't think that they're the kind of team that... They, they seem battle-hardened, right? They, they've got an offense. Their defense has been coming through. Um, they seem pretty unshaken. They are the, the cream of the crop, the best of the best, right? The Rams are dominant. The Saints are better. Chiefs are dominant, the Saints are better. So literally the best of the best. I don't think the Eagles are, are even on par with the Rams. I don't think they're on par with the the Chargers. I don't think they're on par with a lot of these other teams. Um, so pretty easy pick for me. But we'll see, and I'm going to leave it at that. You folks enjoy your fantastical Sunday. I will talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one. Bye-bye.